Let's spread a song so you can sing along with one special guest or two. Or two. You like to sing and dance, and this podcast by chance explores musicals for you. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Life's But a Song's Second Chance Theater, where we recover a topic but with a new guest. I'm your host, John, and with me today is Bestie of the Pod and my bestie in real life. It's Lauren Gismondi, everyone. Wee! <laughs> Hello! Hi! And we're here today to talk about the 2012 version of Les Miserables, blah, 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 blah. Previously, it was episode number 95 with guests Mallory Trunell and Lauren Harding, otherwise known as Crimson Calamity. They're, they're, they're banned. But mm-hmm. Lauren, why did you want to recover this topic? Well, uh, you asked me for a list and I gave you a list. <laughs> That's why. No, (laughs) no, no, no. There's so much more to it. Um, I have such a deep kind of, I guess, all encompassing relationship with less miserables. Uh, Uh And I just want to be able to talk about it and the evolution of less miserable. Now you've seen actually seen a stage production of it. I have seen a stage production. I have been in a stage production. I, yes, yes. All of the above. Okay, because I still have not seen a stage production of it. Mm, okay, and I think I'm okay with that. I'm not. I'm not in a <laughs> rush to see it. That's okay. There'll be another revival, like the fourth or fifth revival, in like five years. So you'll you'll have time. There's there's time. <laughs> it's going in where Phantom was, and they're, they're going <laughs> to stay for another thirty five years. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, okay, rewatching this movie for this episode, I it's safe to say I think I don't like the movie. Mm, okay. I, I mean, overall, I don't think sure. I like it. I, I uh there are things in it I do like, uh, which we can get into later, but like overall, and l- even listening to the first chance episode, I was just like, oh, we went hard on the movie. Cause it, cause it was just like the concept and the the shots. It, we, uh, we kind of talked about the talent, but like, really, they're fine. It's just everything else around them is just like, why, why, why are we not centered in the frame? Why are what what's with the edginess of everything? CGI. The CGI is so bad. <laughs> Yes, the extreme CGI crane shots are a bit sometimes much. I think it works well for one or two of the transitions, but for all the other ones, it's excessive. I mean, I was listening listening to the first chance. I did bring up the opening Mm -hmm. where, okay, it introduces you to like the grandiose nature that you're about to see for the next two and a half hours. Uh, with them pulling the ship mm-hmm. and singing Look Down. And I'm just like, mm-hmm. okay, but uh, I don't know. I feel like they're just like, we now have the, the money and we're going to just do everything. And it's just now too much of things. What are, you, what are your feelings on the movie as a whole? So I've had an evolution with this movie. <laughs> no, seriously. Okay. So I saw it in theaters back in 2012. And seeing it on the big screen makes a huge difference under these particular circumstances. Like the bigger, wider, crazier shots make way more sense in a theater as opposed to you're watching it on your iPad, you're watching it on your television, or maybe if you're really i i mean you're watching it on a phone i'm like that it's a little it doesn't translate it really does not translate well for like the big stuff but then of course when you're in the theater and you're seeing eddie redmayne's snot or tears or whatever it was dripping down his face during empty chairs and empty tables i'm only watching that drip of snot i'm only i'm not paying attention to anything else that's going on i'm waiting to see if it's gonna fall into his mouth (laughs) Oh my God. Yeah. Just to give you like two like big examples, right? So 
watching it this time around and I hadn't I haven't seen the movie in easily it's it's been probably 10 years because I remember watching it once when it was first available for streaming and I haven't seen it since so it's been a quite some time and watching it again last night to prepare for this I found myself not disliking it as much as I had initially Oh, okay. There were, I was able to find more things and because I know the story so well and I know that I read the novel, I like I know these characters inside and out. I was able to kind of get into some of the smaller details and really appreciate them. Like what? Well, I think if you're a fan of the original stage production, um I like myself, I was super excited to see Colm Wilkinson in the movie. He's the bishop. Oh, you are with yeah. me, and the night is cold out there. He's the bishop, and like we're gifted with that. And I was when I first saw the movie, I was like, okay, fine, whatever. Like they just they had to stick him in here. And then this time around, I'm like, oh, it's Valjean. Help future Valjean. Help the current Valjean. And then he turns into like. God at the end? Yeah, then he's, the, then he's the person who helps, who helps uh, Valjean cross over. <laughs> I do have to say, though, I was um, I was actually talking about it at work last night, too, that mm-hmm. uh, although I don't like the movie as a whole, like, mm-hmm. the ending with uh, uh, Valjean's death when um, Fantine comes in, mm-hmm. not the first time, the second time. Um, you know, so it's like, Fantine and Valjean have a little, have a little conversation what he yeah when he actually gets ready to go when he's going no when he's when he's dead basically okay like, okay got it. like seconds before he dies i am ugly crying like mm-hmm. like miss anne hathaway did earlier in uh uh what's that song i dreamed a dream i dreamed a dream thank you it's my brain brain not working um <laughs> but yeah i was and i'm just like every time no matter i think even the last time i watched it for the first chance i cried at that point and i'm just like god damn you movie um but i was wondering because i like i keep admitting i've never seen i haven't seen a stage production yet is there something Hmm. that they cut out for the movie no but they did reorder things oh like what yes so uh, it happened several times. So the first one, the most notable of the lot, we'll say, is where I dreamed a dream happens. Usually in the in the show, I dreamed a dream happens right after she's fired from the factory. That's where it is in the in the stage production. Okay. And then lovely ladies happens, and then you know she get then you know she hits the guy, and then she ends up in the hospital. That all happens. So the fact that, you know, they moved I Dreamed a Dream to after Lovely Ladies where she's lost her hair, she's missing teeth, and, you know, she's, she's kind of becoming bedraggled at best, right? Life, life is hard on her, rough on her. Exactly. Like, I Dreamed a Dream suddenly, I, I mean, when the, I, I was confused, certainly the first time I saw it, I'm like, wait, what is happening? I don't get it. And then when it happened, I was a mess. I'm like, because the weight of what I Dreamed a Dream has naturally in the song made way more sense because we see this character break down slowly and i and i did like i dreamed a dream like i Mm -hmm. like i said there's moments in this movie i do really enjoy this is one of them because like like you said she went through the trials and then it's just a stillness on her Mm -hmm. and it's almost theatrical in a way. Yeah, no, it is. It's 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 that it's the climax that you're that you're like on the or whatever how you want to think about it the zenith point where like you're on the roller coaster and it's going click 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 all the way up and then by the time we get to our dream 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 that's when the brakes release and we're going downhill real fast. But also because like they chose to do it all in one take, one mm-hmm. long shot. That's what I mean. It's like theatrical because like you're basically seeing um, like when you do it on stage, you only get that one shot every yeah, night, yeah. every performance. So like 
you got to fill the stage. And like, I know that this is a movie and we could do close-ups and things like that, but like it all worked mm-hmm. in, this, in, in this one song. Like, yeah. like she was, she was right. The music was right. The, the framing was right. Everything was just right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also ugly crying. Oh, gets me. Sure. No, of course that makes sense. Uh, so was there something that we left out in the first chance that you want to like talk about? I feel like what's interesting is in listening to the first episode is you all really didn't talk about the movie very much. Yeah. You kind of avoided it, which I thought was hilarious. I'm like, I can clearly tell that nobody here really likes this movie well they like he, aspects of it or they like certain songs but overall collectively y'all didn't seem to enjoy yourselves <laughs> no and i'm i'm not gonna lie there's mom i i i did not enjoy a lot of it i'm i i'm in the minority here i will defend russell crowe as a choice so what can i ask why because there's just something about his voice when he when it uh what am i thinking of stars okay for example stars most of it is like in his range and it to me it feels like it works and he has like a little rough around the edges voice which works Uh for the character that i think they were going for in this movie maybe not the be all end all uh javert but for sure this movie I feel like it worked and it was a good contrast to Hugh Jackman, who is a songbird. Uh, There's no way around it. I mean, the guy was. No, it's true. It's true. The contrast is stark. Right. What's interesting is Russell Crowe actually does have a musical background. He does. He has a, he has a, he's got a rock band. band. Yeah. And there's an episode. And the reason I I knew this well before even the movie came out is there's an episode of South Park. Where he punches everything, right? Yes. It's, it's, it's him and his boat Tugga (laughs) fighting around the world. And yet he's going around just like beating up people. But I mean, But but at one point in the point is at one point in the episode is he does start to sing and Tugga basically freaks out, which Tugga's a little tugboat, just so to be clear. A talking tugboat, everyone. He's a, he's a little tugboat that communicates through his toots. It's the best character South Park has ever come up with, truly. Next, next to Towley, right? I know, right? But basically, like, when Russell Crowe starts singing to Tugger, Tugga, uh, Tugga completely loses it and is trying to escape, but he's like attached to the dock, and then he ends up shooting himself. Oh. While Russell Crowe is singing. And so for myself, I personally like I'm watching the movie and I'm like, Taga, Taga. Well, because he had there were moments in stars that I thought he sounded really good. And then he hits the high notes and you're like, oh, not so much. Oh, no. You know what it is with him? It's a placement issue. So for those of you who don't know that I, I teach voice and I'm a, kind of like a low key vocal ped genius over here. I'm going to I'm going to toot my own horn. Because um, I have a Toot toot. Uh, like Taga. Taga. Rest in peace, Taga. Uh, it's okay, buddy. No, Taga lives. Okay, so that's the tangent. Taga does live. Tugga, he doesn't actually kill himself, but, you know, he, he gets all close. We know. Um, no, no. Taga, come, in the episode, Taga comes back. It's cute. Um, anyway, um, so he has what my first voice teacher ever in high school would have described as potato mouth where the placement of the voice is so far back in the mouth. It's like, those, oh, oh, and it, it has, so it, it, when your placement is that far back, it's kind of difficult to sing higher. Whereas if you were to p- go farther forward, make it a little bit more honky and like, ha, 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 not a lot because it's, this is still kind of musical theater opera land. You don't want to go full tilt into, um, once upon a one more time, just because I just saw it, it's on my brain. Um, but if he had brought his sound slightly farther forward, or if he had worked with someone who could have helped him bring his sound farther forward, or you know, could, could they could have gotten somebody else to do the singing? I mean, there's lots of other choices <laughs> because that's the thing is when you put yourself out there as a singer, it's a vulnerable place, you know, because it, it's it's your instrument is you, it's inside of you. 
And so when you go out there and you're doing all of this, it does open you up to ridicule from the community to say, why did you, why did they let this happen? And like, he does act the shit out of the part. Mm-hmm. I think so. And I think this time around, I was really interested in the similarities between Valjean and Javert how they really are in a lot of ways similar people who just went on, like, you know, like met at a fork in a road and just went in opposite directions. I also think that Javert has um, some sort of an obsession with Valjean. And I don't think it's just like, I, I mean, personally, I'm convinced that, you know, there were prisoners that maybe there was something going on between the prison guard and the prisoner. I'm just oh. saying that maybe there was something there. <laughs> And see, I feel like he wants to be the perfect cop with the perfect record and everything. And Valjean is just the one. And that, I mean, that, that is basically it. Yeah. Like, I'm just reading it, into it for funsies. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, so, what do you want to expand upon that we didn't? You want to talk more about the, the story? Is that what you wanted? You were talking, you were saying that we didn't, because like people know Lay Miz. <laughs> It's true. If you know Lame is, you know Lame is. Like you that, know is, Lame that is. is and been around you, for a very long time. There was, it, you know, there's been several movies at this point. And according to you, like <laughs> this is basically the show, in a way. There's some things in different order, but like you get the gist of everything. Sure, sure. Like those that die are the ones that die in the show. <laughs> It what are you a- talking about? There's a magical fairy that comes out at the very end and goes, it was all a dream, poof, and everybody comes back to life. What I don't understand... Spoiler! Yes. How does no one know that uh, Valjean saved Marius? Because, I mean, what's his name? Tenardier comes in at the wedding and is like, oh, Valjean killed a guy and I saw him in the sewers. Which works because that's what you think because Marius is not... Not a lot. Uh, he's knocked out at that point. He's, yeah, um, he's unconscious. Most likely... Uh, wait, what did I write down? Oh, I wrote down during the, the sewers, I'm pretty sure that Marius has an infection. Um, yeah, I think both of them do at that point. So I'm like, Because they are <laughs> wading through shit, literally. Yeah, yeah. And it's a man have... frame business. Oh my goodness. And he was shot. Marius yes. was shot. And he so, should like, be dead. He should, yeah. Especially the eight, 1800s, France, mm-hmm. yeah. But um, I was just like, how did he not know? Like, did nobody say in the hospital, oh, Valjean saved, brought you in or something like that? I mean, you see how Valjean handles all of his business, right? So it's actually on track for what he does with all the other characters that he interacts with for the most part in the movie. You don't know me, you don't see me. You don't know me, you don't see me. And what's interesting, too, is that even in the attack of the barricade, he does not kill a person, any single person. No. No. The only wrongdoing... Well, there's two wrongdoings he he does in the movie, (laughs) in the show. He steals the loaf of bread and gets caught. Yes. Which you're just like, okay, everything is so severe for no reason. And then he just escapes parole. And, like, that's, that's a big thing. But, like, it's not, like, murder. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just, like, he's not following the law. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then he's assuming roles elsewhere. Yes. Monsieur Le Maire. Yeah, he changes his name. He, like... So, I mean, to a certain extent, Javert is right. You, you, are, you, you are a thief. You've been stealing identities. You've been doing all of this stuff. So Javert is, is never really in the wrong. Yeah, it's just that... He's so it's just the way he goes about things. That's like, what are you doing, dude? I was reading on the IMDb trivia. Um, mm-hmm. which, uh, I'm just going to read directly from IMDb. Sure, sure. Fontaine's assault by a rejected customer is based on an actual incident from Victor Hugo's life that resulted in Fontaine's creation. He was on his way to his editor's office when he encountered a young man harassing a prostitute. When she rejected his advances, he shoved a handful of snow down her dress and shoved her to the ground. When she defended herself with her fists, he immediately called the police to arrest his, quote, assailant. Hugo was a minor celebrity at the time and spoke up on the woman's behalf when the police arrived and was able to 
have her set free. Hugo said that he was horrified by the unfairness of the women's situation and began to imagine that she might have had children depending on her. And thus Fatine appeared in his mind. I was like, cool. You basically just described the whole scene. (laughs) Yeah. Like, it's not that he was, it's, it's like, he was just like, Oh, this just happened. Let me write it down real fast so I can make billions off of it. I'm assuming the book is a hit, right? It is. I mean, the book is different from the musical um, because the book is broken down into mini books, like sections. So like there's a whole Fontaine section, like a solid 150 plus pages. That's just Fontaine's story. Oh, shit. And then it's then like, you know, there's a bunch of them, you know, Valjean, Javert. I read the book a while ago, so I don't remember the other two. But basically it breaks it down by the characters in sections and like and then how they intersect throughout okay oh that's interesting yeah yeah and i also like i know you all talked about the musical originally being in french i had not heard the french version of the musical until maybe two or three years ago and it made so much more sense in french <laughs> well it's like it's like in french lore and the writers are french it's like watching an opera that's translated into english and you're like this doesn't make sense i mean the Um, poet they they take some license with the poetry which is which is to be anticipated but there's something there was something about it that made me love the score even more than I already do. You know, this is one of those those musicals that I hear the first like opening chords, which is those dun 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 da da, those first five chords, and like I have goosebumps. I am ready. Yeah, <laughs> where although I did kind of complain about it, the movie does follow the the that because that is mm-hmm. very grand. Yes, and you're like, and it's like, get ready, buckle up, kids, you're in for an epic. Mm-hmm. Now, is this an opera or is this a musical? I never understand what Les Mis is. <laughs> well, um, Bobil and uh, Schoenberg, the, the, the creators of this, are also the writers behind uh, Miss Saigon. Oh, shit. That's another one. That <laughs> See? Yeah. So you see, you say that. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with Miss Saigon, Miss Saigon is, um, it is another epic musical. I would say that for sure. Uh, it, and it, um, it's based off of an opera, which is based off of an old story called Madame, Madame Butterfly. It has had many iterations over the years as a play, as a musical, the opera, the original story, blah, 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 blah. So these are two guys who like to pull from historical documents, historical stories, we'll say. Mm-hmm. Whether or not Less Miserables is an opera, ugh, I mean, opera houses, it's interesting, opera houses don't tend to perform it. Okay. And that sometimes for me is, is ultimately the defining factor is whether or not an opera house will take on a musical. Does it make that transition? Whereas a lot of Sondheim pieces, opera houses will take on. Like they'll Sweeney. take on Sunday in the Park with George, Sweeney Todd, a little night music. Okay. So you so, would say based on how the world where mm-hmm. where this is performed, mm-hmm. it's a musical. It is an epic musical, I would say. Epic musical. Epic. Because epic kind of because the reality is is like there is nearly no dialogue. So from a technical perspective, yes, it is an opera. Because opera, there is no, there's very little speaking. Mozart is one of the few examples where that is, um, some of his operas, where that's not the case, where there are scenes, Shana. Uh, But I am hard-pressed to call it like a true opera. I know it doesn't quite feel right. But a musical, but a musical epic, I think, is a good way to describe it. See, I, I I'm always just confused because, like, <laughs> I, I'm, I know the layman, the layman's terms, you know, where it's mm-hmm. like opera is all sung through, musicals mm-hmm. have dialogue. Yeah, so, that is the basic differentiation. You're not wrong. That's all correct. Right, but like but there are there are things like this that just. Yeah, that are they are tread in so many different exactly. It treads in so many different directions 
that it really, I do believe it depends on who you ask. Truly. Mm. Diehard musical theater fans would say it's an opera. Diehard opera fans would say, oh, it's a musical. So then, <laughs> so then did the, Last, mu- the musical epic was born. I did, I made a new word. The Somebody music- hire me. <laughs> musical, ep- the epic musical. Um, mm-hmm. So then in the movie, mm-hmm. I feel like there are moments where they added actual talking as opposed mm-hmm. to recitatives. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know if that's true to the show as well, the stage version as well. No, there's like one or two lines that are spoken in the musical, if I'm remembering correctly, like in the stage show. Okay. So there but is spoken dialogue in the stage Yeah, show. but it's minimal. There really are notes written for every single word. <laughs> and that's a lot of notes. It is it's- a monster. It, it's a monster of a piece. Now, I want to talk a little bit more about like how there are six theme themes of uh musical themes in the whole mm-hmm. show. But like does it sound like whenever people die it's the same musically? When Fantine is about to die and then a little mm-hmm. fall of rain and then also Valjean's death, I feel like that they are the same. Yeah, it's a similar theme, absolutely. At the very least, you can say it's the same instruments that are brought to the forefront. But also, like, the same melody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep, it's that do 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 Which is... And which... a little fall of rain pulls from that. So that's, yeah, yeah. So they are. It's very similar. You're correct. The only one whose death is different, that is highlighted anyway, is um, Gavroche. Right, because he's he singing. He's singing the people. reprise. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Where that kid did amazing. I know he's a I was, highlight. <laughs> I, I know I was a little harsh on him in the first chance, but I was just rewatching this. I was like, no, he's he did he did everything, mm-hmm. and he's just supposed to be like their little mascot. He's not related to anybody. Well, like in the no... musical, believe I believe Gavroche and Eponine are siblings. Oh, wow. Yeah, that wasn't clear this time around. And I think they just kind of threw that out the window. It felt like he was a uh, uh, one of the student's brothers. Exactly, yeah. So again, like it's the, a younger sibling. Like the one that um, carries him off. That's, the, yeah, yeah. that's how I felt because of like how he's just like, Gavroche, no, no, come back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would believe that as well. Did you I buy into it? So the song suddenly that he sings, follow me on this train of thought. In okay. the movie, Victoria has the song, the new song that was written because they wanted to be nominated for awards for it. And they wanted to give Taylor Swift something to do. Right. And but that song I felt out of place. Mm-hmm. You, but like to me. I didn't know the for like the first because I like you saw this in theaters and I didn't know suddenly was written for the movie. But I felt like and I still feel like it fits in with uh, the music world of this of this show. How do you feel about it? Yes, it is a good place to put a song. (laughs) <laughs> do i like this whether or not i like the song is a different story but like i mean with the language of music that we've established by this point in mm-hmm. the in because it's what the 17th it's... song <laughs> we're about an hour into the movie yes <laughs> yeah and it, and he's having this moment and i was mm-hmm. just like it does fit in like musically whether or not the lyrics do is another question, but like it felt like a new theme, but like not too far off from the rest of them. No, I agree. It absolutely fits in, in musically. I think the lyrics are extremely inappropriate to be singing to, singing about a child in that way. And there was a moment where I was listening to it and I was like, this is giving me some weird not good vibes and maybe it's because i just finished watching um jared from subway catching a monster <laughs> but uh, i was getting some pedo- i was getting some pedophilia vibes oh boy. i wasn't having it 
I'm finding it, that with with Second Chance Theater that like outside forces are going to change my opinion from the first chance to the second chance. So like you you just gave a prime example of like you just watched that documentary and that's fresh in your brain and so that's going to affect this viewing of it. It was an accident. It wasn't intentional. <laughs> no, 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 but but like I mean if you didn't watch the documentary though, do you think you would still have the same feelings? I think so. Okay. Because it could, it sounds like a love song. It reads like a love song. And then all of a sudden he says, oh, and this child. And I was like, (laughs) suddenly I'm feeling all these new feelings. Like, uh, Uh oh, (laughs) it's a beautiful song. Otherwise I sat there and I'm like, it's a lovely song. Why is it being sung to a child? Because this is a little twisty and I don't like this twisty. (laughs) See, and I just thought of it as he's just talking yeah I mean, he is. obviously that that's what he's that's what he's doing he's just working through <laughs> he's just working through everything and then he's like uh-huh. oh fuck there's javert we gotta run um, right 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 i don't know where i'm going with this but i i i just wanted to it, it's interesting because it was nominated for best original song mm-hmm. didn't win but i was about to say what won oh uh, let me see Skyfall won. And that makes sense. <laughs> it was also up against Everybody Needs a Best Friend from Ted. That should have won. <laughs> Before My Time from Chasing Ice. Never heard of that movie. And mm-hmm. Pie's Lullaby from Life of Pi. It should have been the movie, the music from Ted. That song should have won. <laughs> it's Seth MacFarlane. I mean, like, it doesn't get better than that. But yeah, Skyfall one that makes sense. It does make sense that 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 tracks. It's James Bond. So yeah, that was my key issue with it, honestly. So rewatching this for for this episode, I was like, I on I feel like I relate now with Eponine and her story mm-hmm. because I've been thinking about because okay, so you watched you watched the the Jared from Subway documentary. I'm rewatching Shit's Creek, so like. Uh, okay so like i've got those feelings stirring up you know where i'm relating with david again in that but i'm relating with eponine with like the unrequited love with the um i'm i i love this person but i'm going to help them out because that means i get to spend more time with them and i've yeah i've definitely done that in my life sure sure so the thing that pissed me off is her death because she moves the gun towards her, which feels weird. I feel like she should have just jumped in front of the uh, of Marius instead. Because if you're yeah, gonna I don't... if you're gonna physically move the gun, move it away, move it up. Don't aim it at your chest. Yeah, for fuck's sake. <laughs> it's true though. I was like, "What are you doing, girl?" But in fairness. I, to speak of the women in this particular show, there is so little control that they have over their own lives. All of them mm-hmm. collectively have next to no control whatsoever. And when they get like half an ounce of control, it usually backfires on them. Um, I could say that I, I, you could do a case study on all three of them. I guess all four. I would say I put throw them down to Nardier in there as well. You could do a case study on the four of them and be like, yeah, nobody here actually has autonomy. Or well, so, if they have autonomy, it's very, very limited. But so let's get into lovely ladies. Uh, sure. Because I was I was feeling something similar to that, where mm-hmm. the chorus is bouncy. Lovely ladies, da-da-ba-da-ba, ba-da. And like they sound like they're putting on a, a, a cockney voice or something because we're in Paris, but everyone has a British accent. That's another that's another thing for another day. But when the soloists are doing their moments in Lovely Ladies, I feel like the movie at least didn't put enough emphasis on that. Cause like that's that's the true moment where they're just like, we understand life is shit on you. Um <laughs> And then you get to the chorus, the and I'm like, I don't, the dichotomy of the song for me doesn't work. And I don't know if that's the same on stage 
or if that's just how the movie did it. No, it is that way on stage, but there are ways you can craft those moments in between because the facade of it, it kind of like plays up the facade of what they're going through. And there's, there's the reason lovely ladies, like, especially when not, you know, for those, I did Les Miserables in high school when John and I were in high school. And that song in particular, when we were working on it, it was one of my favorite scenes because basically all of us were in the ensemble until we became the characters that we played for the rest of the show. So Eponine, Cosette, myself as Madame Tenardi, all of us were in the ensemble until we became our respective characters, which was an interesting choice in hindsight. And it made it like we, as, as if some of us didn't have enough work for in the actual show itself. It's like, now you're going to do all the ensemble numbers until it gets to your part. Uh, <laughs> but that particular section, like when it's done well, and you, you can really, like, you get, like, at least when we, when we staged it then, it, you had the solidarity. Like all of us were like, you were grouped, you had your group, you had your, your line. And like, that was like your little camaraderie bit. And the other thing is that I remember like when, you know, is that we were like, I remember in the staging, like we got to stand up for Fontaine when she gets beaten up by the guy mm. instead of trying to hide, like they really like huddled around her to protect her. So like there are things that they could have done that would have helped create that bond, but also in fairness to the way they filmed it, it shows how she's fighting the whole time not to be like them even when they're giving her kindness, when they're granting her some grace, mm-hmm. she's not ready for it. And they turned it into a montage. Yes. It's understandable because like she wouldn't cut her hair and then automatically sell her teeth and then have yeah. sex with people. Mm-hmm. But it's just- That is what happens in the show though. That is that is work. what happens. But I mean, like, yes. it's not. it's not like, I don't think it happens in the same day. Like even in the show. It doesn't, but- Okay, so I saw the revival, like the first revival back in 2007. And because the stage had, um, oh God, what am I thinking of? It was spinning. Everything was spinning. A revolve. Yes, it had a revolving stage. They were able to revolve it slowly to kind of show the passing of time during that particular song. That's interesting. Yeah, so every time like it stopped for a court, like like, it basically it stopped. It was spinning, 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 stop. Spin, 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 stop for the scene. Spin, 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 stop for the scene. And every time it, it was like they were at a different point. So there were different members of the ensemble that were downstage every okay. time there was one to kind of help with what you're talking about to show that like the day, di- how, how things digress. Right. And it's weird that you said that like it's after I Dreamed a Dream in the stage show. It's like in West Side Story, the movie that they put, they switched Cool and Krupke. Because in the stage version, or at least original stage version, Krupke is after the rumble where Bernardo and Riff die. Sorry, spoiler for that one. But like, it just makes sense to switch them because Krupke is such an upbeat number and everything. So like, yeah, lovely ladies, the dichotomy of it is a little weird. But like, it makes sense for it to be before because you just see the erosion of Fontaine. Because, like, the women the women in the sweatshop or whatever, before this, they want her gone just because they're jealous of her? Pretty much, yeah. It's not the fact that she has Cosette staying with the innkeepers. It's like, they twist things and say that she's been sleeping around, but, yep. like, they're just jealous of her? They're jealous of her. They're jealous that she gets preferential treatment from the boss. That's why he's the one who. That's why he's the one who ultimately decides. Like, oh wait, you won't let me sleep with you, but you let other people sleep with you. Fuck off. That's really what it is. Oh, oh. Speaking of the factory scene, do you want to know who else makes a cameo in there? And it makes me so so happy. It's the lady that is the the dissenting voice, right? No. Oh, who makes a cameo in there? Hannah Waddingham is one of those women. Oh. Mm-hmm. You barely yeah. recognize her because she's got this, these crazy false teeth in and a brown wig, but it's fucking Hannah Waddingham. So here's something I would like to bring up very quickly, which is I so loved all of the smaller roles in this movie. I know y'all talked about how like a lot of the students came back and they reprised their roles. And it's so obvious that they're like the people who can really sing. 
Yeah. And I have, I made a note. I'm like, you know, it's a little, maybe it's not a great sign if I'm like, yay, the ensemble's back. That's a problem for a musical that features many a soliloquy in song. Because even though I love Hugh Jackman and he gives me zaddy vibes, like when he comes in after Cosette sings In My Life and he's there with that shirt, I was like, I, I, uh, hi. (laughs) (laughs) Why are you dressed like this in front of your adopted daughter that you bought from this weird family? (laughs) Because you basically killed her mom. Yeah. There's a lot to unpack here, but I'm all now I'm all hot and bothered because Hugh Jackman comes in and he's like, Cosette, you're such a lonely child. <laughs> I'm like, this is not an appropriate reaction, Lauren. But I also sometimes have no self-control. So here we are. Sorry, um, I had to I had to take a picture of my face because I need I think I'm gonna put it on the socials to, after that line. <laughs> please do. Oh my goodness. I, I, didn't mean, I really the- I didn't want to put the video. I just want to put a picture of me <laughs> of that of that face that I made because it was gold in my opinion. I believe it. Like I love it. Let's do it. I, yeah, that was. Were we? What were we talking about? I'm so sorry. No, just the cameos of of the yeah. former. Yeah, and the students. And mm-hmm. uh, you said Hugh Jackman gave you zaddy vibes. Yes, I did. Heartless, basically. <laughs> Yeah, but, and the other go ahead. But I think the point you were trying to make is like Hugh, though a great singer, I think he took on a little too much with this role. I just think that there were moments that could have been crafted better. Bring him home is a prime example of that. What makes Bring Him Home so beautiful when it's performed live? Okay, so backstory. So back in 2006, way, way, way long ago, when we did Less Miserables in high school. Um, I didn't Craig, do it. I want to put this out there. Okay, I, fine. I did it. John watched from the sides in horror. I didn't. I did. I didn't even watch it. So <laughs> I can still say I've never seen the show because I. Well, I have it on DVD. If you ever want a good laugh, it is solid gold, brilliant high school theater. Um, oh god! But and, uh, but this is also around the time when when mm-hmm. our school did it was when the school edition came out. Yes, I'm about to get into that. Oh, okay. Yes, yes. Not, not too much of it. So, yeah, so the high school edition had just been released because they were, you know, it's theater. They're always looking to make money. How can we do it? Well, if we make a high school edition, it'll, uh, it'll give us money. Can I tell you for a fact that, like, they cut three songs out of the high school edition? It's basically the whole show. Exactly. That's the what right face. That is the right face to make. It's the whole bloody show. Hold on. Let me take a picture of this face, too. <laughs> What yeah. were they? What songs were cut? Um, Dog Eats Dog. What is that? It, it's 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 actually not in the movie. Now that I think about it, it's a Tenardier song that he sings while he's um in the sewers. Oh, okay. So you get like a little hint of it in the movie, but it's not the actual Dog Eat Dog song. Got it. You yeah, know- they, I forget what the other two were. It was small stuff. You wouldn't have missed it kind of thing. But it's still two, almost two and a half hours long. And that's a lot for high schoolers. Um, but Craig Schulman did a grand tour because there, I think there were like six or seven high schools on Long Island at the time that were doing it that spring in 2006. And he actually knew our choir director. They grew up together and he went to Fredonia. So there's like lots of weird connections. But he was the first person who ever kind of broke down what backleading was for me. And I was 16 years old and I was oh. still really young. I wasn't studying privately at that time. What what was? Backleading. So I'll explain. Uh, okay. Backleading in musical theater is, so you know, normally when you're looking at a piece of music, you're going to sing like that was it's written. When the, when the voice, when, when there's the notes, you're going to sing where the voice is. Backleading is when the accompanist, play, accompanist plays what's written and the singer will sometimes fall farther back on the beat. And he was like, this is extremely important in a piece like Bring Him Home. And he sang Bring Him Home for us. And this is a guy, for those who do not know, Craig Schulman was like the longest running Valjean on Broadway. Period. That's his claim to fame. I think he, he did the trifecta. That's a the trifecta of big musical roles in the 80s and 90s, which is Phantom, Valjean, and Jekyll and Hyde. Oh, I and thought he, I thought you were going to say he was the rem, uh, 
He was not Rum Tum Tugger. He was not the Rum Tum Tugger. I'm so sorry. Or old but he basically, like, you want somebody to like step in to fill in a role. He's your guy and he can do it forever. So he said, bring him home for us. And I was blown the fuck away. But like, I was following just like, oh this- my back leading example yes he 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 showed us how he showed us how like this is how the music's actually written and here's how they actually want you to sing it in the show it was it was it's slight slight differences it's slight but the way he floated all those high notes where it really felt like this introspective prayer killed me like i was sitting in the front row and he's six feet away from me and i was just like i was weeping so I have very high expectations for Bring Him Home. It's a very hard song to sing. It really is. And so when somebody like Hugh Jackman, who God bless him, uh, he, can, he, can, he can honk and hoot all day long, did not capture that essence of it. Because religion is such a massive overarching theme in this particular show, in the movie, and the musical. It's a massive thing. So these there's these moments where that sometimes can get a little lost. And I just felt like he was showboating. I'm like, you're just showboating because you can full voice these notes. And that doesn't show me that you have control or restraint. It just shows me that you can showboat. It also felt like he was straining for some of those notes. Yeah. Whereas if he were to float them, give it like an angelic quality, it's easier to sing. You can sing that eight times a week by letting it think, instead of being, God, on high, hear thy like I mean, it's like what the hell? I mean, God, God can hear us regardless of how loudly we pray. Okay, <laughs> so giving it that gentle God on high, hear my prayer, and, and it's <sighs> those lovely legato lines suddenly mean something. <sighs> and it's a movie; you can be quiet. There, they have. Yeah. The the technology, especially in 2012, <laughs> we for fuck's sake had the technology that <laughs> you can sing quieter mm-hmm. and still get captured. Because like yeah. I, mean, I mean that was, and we discussed at length about the live singing of it in the first yeah. chance. But like it's a brave choice. It's a brave choice. I think when it comes to sorry, I interrupted you. I'm well. I was gonna say. I mean, it's live singing. So like. I don't know what choice he made in that moment to full voice belt out, bring him home. It's a quiet moment. It's a, it's a prayer. It What's weird though, is like watching it in the movie. I was also confused as if it was like an actual monologue that he's saying out loud, or if it's just an internal thing and he's mentally taking in his surroundings but not like literally standing in front of marius to be like i need to save him because he's in love with my fake daughter right <laughs> well for what it's worth in this show he's keep in the musical in the stage show um he's keeping watch over he's got the first watch while everybody else is sleeping uh, so that's that's the reason it also has to be uh, is because he can't wake uh, everybody up but i felt like it's it's an internal song i thought it was like a more internal song as opposed to to like at the end of the day or like no you're right you're right it is super introspective yeah it is i don't know if it's i don't know if i agree that it's internal but i will agree say that it's introspective that it's looking inward as opposed to looking out but for for the purpose of the movie i felt like he wasn't literally walking around the barricade i thought that was just them filling time and they were and they weren't trusting that the song was good enough by itself that's what that tells me more than anything i say it to my students on a somewhat regular basis i'm like there is power in stillness there is power in like the lights being down and they're just being that one focus one focus spotlight and just being present it takes a ton of confidence to pull that off for sure so anytime i see somebody doing too many gestures or they're wandering around or the cameras you know just panning in all these places i'm like you're not trusting the fact that the song by itself can stand up would it have worked though if he didn't move around but they still cut away to like the other people in the barricade while he's singing so i think so 
because it's the whole thing is like he's like the son I might have known if God had granted me a son like that's kind of how he's looking at all of these young these young students is like any one of them you know they're all risking everything to be here and then ultimately you know what is it that last line when the make the soldiers show up right before the last battle they're like Paris didn't show up for you everybody's asleep the doors are all locked the windows are all closed that's wrong uh, it's and it's the first time like what, here's a guy who had like eight bars of music to sing and he was outstanding those eight bars were so crisp and defined and i'm like why why did you only get eight bars why aren't you playing Javier? <laughs> is he is he another easter eggy person no i don't not to my knowledge okay. but it's one of those things where i'm like but you could have I hate it when they do this name recognition crap because <laughs> it doesn't always pan out well. It really, really does not. We see it on stage. We see it in movies. I'm like, Lord, what were you thinking? <laughs> Before we get into Shrive and Flat, though, there is just yes. one detail I do want to bring up, and I thought it was Please. hilarious. Mm-hmm. In Master of the House. Is this about Santa? No. Well, I love Santa, but... <laughs> I didn't, it didn't click that Madame Thenardier, played by Helena Bonham Carter, is at a meat grinder in one yeah. shot. Yeah. And I was like, up, that's, that is the whole bit, like where they're chopping up the cat's tail and stuff. Like that's, I, that's in the stage show too. They're making, they're, they're literally making their own sauce. Oh, and see, whatever. I, thought, I thought that was them being like, look, she was in Sweeney. You liked Sweeney, kind of. No, it's in the words, John. <laughs> I, don't, I didn't really pay attention. There's so many words in this in this, and they're I, all songs, so it's hard to keep track. But I, I I just thought it was funny that it was another. I thought it was another connection to Sweeney because like the two of them, were right, in right, the movie right. version. Um, but yeah, I was just like, oh, this is a cute little detail that I thought was just for the movie. We're doing great. Sure. Is there anything else you want to talk about though before we get into sharp and flat? No, I think I can save all my sharps and flats for sharps and flats. Do you think though that we talk? I mean, we didn't really. We also didn't really talk about the plot as much. We don't need to talk about the plot because the novel is almost two hundred years old. Right, and it's it it's depressing. Everything is depressing. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, with a title that is that that title, it tracks. You know, it's not going to be happy go lucky hoop to do it's not that's not what it's about that's not well, the point only- there are moments there are moments of true joy and like funniness and humor but it's called Les Miserables for a reason yeah I did I, I did write um at the end at the very end when they reprised do you hear the people sing mm-hmm. I, I wrote down I feel like protesting something because that song I don't know it, it's a protest song and it makes me want to protest yeah it's a call to arms for sure. Yeah. I put, and I, that to add to that, I was like, so heaven is a French barricade. I guess. Or they're saying, the, they're, they're saying the fight's not over. No, it's never over. It means we go to heaven and we keep fighting. Oh boy. Okay. Ugh, no rest. All right, let's get into it. Let's get to sharp and flat. Shall we? Sharp. Flat. So in this section, we're going to highlight some moments, whether or not we talked about it. If we liked it, it's sharp. And if we didn't like it, I thought it could change. It's flat. And since this is the second chance of it all, does John agree with his former sharps and flats? Uh, Mm. But I'm going to let Lauren, you go first. You go. Do whatever you want. Uh, Let's do Sharpies first. Um, Old lady, old church lady side eye is everything. In that opening scene when he's there, like, shoveling the food in his mouth, and there's the two old ladies that are just giving him a side eye. <laughs> Primo. <laughs> Primo. I'm going to talk small moments. I'm going to talk mostly small moments. Um, I said putting Fontaine in pink uh, during, at the end of the day. And everybody else is wearing all blue, but she's wearing pink, a.k.a. Scarlet Letter. Excellent choice. Oh. Um, I approved the switching of lovely ladies, and I dreamed a dream. This was smartness at work. Um, let me see what else do I have. Oh, <laughs> I like the fact that I that in this particular rendition, Russell Crowe makes me care about Javert's history during the confrontation between him and Valjean. Boom, excellent. Um, I put Santa stooping. I did not catch that. 
Santa was the one having sex with that woman during Master of the House until very quietly you hear, oh, Santa! <laughs> A plus. I so love I Santa. Well, I have to basically give credit to this movie because while the main players are like fine, they're passable, the supporting roles and the super small roles roles are dynamite they are so good so clearly defined and it makes me happy um i already talked about hugh jackman zaddy vibes uh get into it um blah 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 blah, blah. yes i said that about the small boys oh it's a visually stunning piece i mean yes the cgi crane shots are ridiculous but the one that transitions from another story must begin into at the end of the day is breathtaking the one that goes from Javert's suicide into the cleaning up of the stones works really well. And that sound effect of his body crunching into the ocean, I was like, oh, I, I cringe every time. Again, it's like these small details were well thought out. And, oh, another moment that made me really happy is um, when he's got, when Valjean is just finished carrying uh Marius out of the shit sewer um, and he's going look down Javert he's standing in his grave but the whole time Javert's already looking down on me like the whole time and that made me laugh because I'm like <laughs> director you didn't think that you thought through all these other stupid little things but this is one thing that's a little ridiculous that you should have really thought about <laughs> oh yes I liked this is the final thing I liked um, that the end um, they swap out Eponine for the bishop to meet him in heaven as mm. he's going to heaven. Um, because in yes. the original, in the show, Eponine is the uh, it's the, that do that trio is Fontaine, Eponine, and Valjean. Uh, I liked the switch to the bishop because it makes more sense to his particular story. Whereas his interaction with Eponine is so limited that it never really made sense to me, other than they wanted an alto voice to support the tenor and the soprano but also he only crossed paths with her when she's a child yes he doesn't because they do at least yeah in the in this in the movie Mm -hmm. they don't Mm -hmm. when when she's running around the barricade and playing messenger between Mm -hmm. and um marius eponine and valjean do not intersect at all yeah they really don't he intersects oh, at the with house. Them. At the house, she goes to his house. Yeah, but he doesn't see her. I know, but she's there. She's I'm, there. That's what I mean. She it's, sees it's, him, but he doesn't yeah, see her. Exactly. So what I'm saying is, it's limited in scope. But like, I agree with you in the switch because it's just like, why is she another heavenly voice in the show? Yeah. Oh, I have one more thing that I completely forgot. Um, I was moved, legitimately moved. When Javert took off his pin and left it with Gavroche. Yeah, that's a That got one. me. That really got me this time around. That doesn't okay, happen that was, in the stage show, I'm assuming. I don't, I, not to my knowledge. I, in fairness, during the barricade scenes and all that, like Madame Thenardier, my, I was in hair and makeup. <laughs> transforming, from, transforming into the wedding outfit. Uh, I had a solid break from the end of act one until the wedding. <laughs> the Madame Tenardi is literally in is, is backstage getting into her corset, getting the curls done because we didn't wear wigs. So there I am with the freaking curling iron, standing there just curling every bit of my hair to get the poof going. <laughs> so oh, those right, are all because, my sharpies. Because the um the last time you see her is when they're in like present day, quote unquote. And yeah. They try to. She's just. She says, "Oh, I remember you." To Vel- yeah, yeah. They're there with the with the fake baby. Yes, yeah. that's the last time. Like, no, no. Well, no. We're she's in the Sardines are in um, one day more. That's the last time. Oh, you see her. right. Yes. Is it during the epic montage of all the characters smushing, smush, smush, um, during one day more? All right. What are your flats then? Oh Lord. Okay. Let's go. This is why I took notes. This is exactly why I took notes. Okay, we're going to take it from the top. Why are we in everyone's faces? The close-ups, too, too much. Um, oh, yeah, we already talked about Russell Crowe, and it's fine. Um, blah, 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 blah. I was like, oh, why is no one singing with a French accent? It's the one thing I've never understood about the show. I'm like, why are they? I know that, like, the original cast, the original English cast was British, but th- th- we get, like, maybe 45 seconds of Tenardier singing with a French accent during the, uh, the, the exchange of money for child. 
And like uh, they they say Monsieur or yeah, like yeah. uh Rue de la Mer or whatever. Where, yeah, Rue de la Mer. Uh, yeah. Yes. And you're like, you're saying some French words. Just mm-hmm. say it in a French accent for fuck's sake. Yeah, exactly. It's very confusing at best. Um and, hey, if anybody out there has a logical reason as to why this is a thing, please contact me because I am very curious and I want answers. Um, I, I just wrote, God damn it, Cosette, why are you so stupid? <laughs> when she's wandering around lost in the woods. <laughs> I mean, in fairness, if she wasn't lost in the woods, maybe he wouldn't have found her, but still, it's it's like, oh no. Um, I already spoke about how the women are represented in the show and how they they lack autonomy, they lack um, true personage. And basically, all are relying on a man to get them through things, some more than others, but there's all that. Except for Madame Thenardier. Eh, she still kind of needs him. That's that's their problem in their relationship, is that she is the, a lot of the brains behind the operation. And this is a conversation I had with Craig Schulman when I was a teenager, because he was like, he sat me down privately while there was a bunch of other things going down, and he was talking to me specifically about Madame. And he had said to me, he's like, we have to remember is that she resents him, but she needs him. Mm, okay. She couldn't do any of this stuff on her own, even though she's the more capable of the two of them. And he's kind of, you know, a, a yacht. He's the an idiot. Bat. Exactly. So he was like, that's what, that's the only reason their marriage works. He needs her way more than she needs him. But she needs him because of sexism. Because society. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, I said the men are caught up in their own, so much in their own crap that they can't see how misogynistic they are. Kind of this goes hand in hand, I think. Um, I, I didn't like that they moved up on my own in the movie. That's one that didn't, that the switch doesn't make sense to me. On my own typically happens after she drops off the letter for, what's his face? Mary. She drops off the letter to, from, she does, she does another run. It's not Gavroche that does the second run back to uh, Valjean in the musical. She does it. And that's when she gets shot coming back. Oh. Yes, that's what happens. So on my own happens after the second letter drop off when she's so she's she's in you know full boy drag, and she's that's where the song happens typically, and it makes more sense because it's the second time that she's done this for him. She did, Samantha it's Barks did it. did uh, Eponine somewhere, right? Is that is that? Yeah, she did it in London. Okay, I'm trying to remember because like. Like we said, there's a bunch of people who reprise their roles or moved around, mm-hmm. especially the students. But like she, I know she played Eponine somewhere. Yes. Mm-hmm. And the last thing I have to say is, how did Valjean get quick? Get so sick so quickly? In between that lead, that scene where he's going off in the carriage, and then all of a sudden he's like dying. We didn't and like get next a, to no time has passed. We didn't get a title card telling us how much time has passed. I know, but that's just it. I don't think it's that much because they were looking to get married as soon as possible. Well, maybe it's like the effects of the war. Maybe he did get an infection from the sewers and they just didn't extrapolate on it. Very possible. Because this is a second chance theater. Does John agree with his former Sharps and Flats? Um, yeah. Yeah, I do. Um, I do want to emphasize my Sharp for Santa, though, because that was hilarious. Mm-hmm. I also want to emphasize my sharp for uh, Master of the House because, like, they get it. They yes. the two are perfect. I I can't like we could talk about um you know the everyone else the all the other stunt casting that happened and pick apart and find other people, but I feel like those two people got it and they need they I, I can't imagine anybody else doing it like for this movie. So I do have some new ones. Let's start with my new flats because I'll end on a high note. Hey, yo. It's it's still about the film language. Like, I don't, the, the I can't really dismiss the writing because that's the show. And then like the acting, whatever. But like, I didn't like the choppy editing, like going through the sewers I'm is a good example. It's just like you we don't need all of this, I feel like. Like I feel like they spent too much time in the sewers. And also my other flat new flat is for the shaky camera work mixed with like 
clean. The one that comes to my, that I, I wrote this down specifically when he's like climbing a mountain or something. But in the, in the beginning, before he gets to, before, before he meets the Bishop, he left jail, he's climbing. And like, it felt like they were treating it like an indie A24 film or something. And I was just like, this isn't it. You were a big budget musical. Um, But that's really it for the new flats and the new sharps. I sharped Fontaine during Valjean's death because I didn't do that the first time around. And like I said, it always makes me cry. And I think it's perfection of like, you know, they got the lighting right. They got her right. And the music is beautiful and everything. And then also my new sharp, this is going to sound dumb, but uh, the precision of choreography like in um at the end of the day when they're in the workshop uh them moving their needles in perfect time but that's it that's it for me for bay sharps and flats uh would you add any of the songs to your life's playlist yes i love the whole score i'm keeping everything groovy um i uh, i the, the i pick and choose with with them um I, I like the big ones personally. Uh, and on that note, Lauren, we're done with the episode. We done did it. We did that. Hooray! We did that. Do you have anything you want to <laughs> plug or promote? Oh goodness. Um, there is, this is the getting into the calm time for me for the next couple of weeks. Um, I'm doing a musical tryout of a new show up in Boston that I'm very excited about. And once I have more details that I'm allowed to share with people, I will share them. But for now, you know, you can find me on Instagram at lodges underscore sangs, as always. That's the only place I ever am. And that's where you'll post, I'm assuming. Correct. Awesome. I don't know if you actually love the movie version of Les Mis and can defend it I would love to hear from you you can email me at buttersongpod at gmail.com I'm also on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and TikTok at buttersongpod we've asked some questions I can't remember any of them that we asked during the episode but if you have any answers to them let me know and if you want French to be... accents where are they oh, yeah, hey, yeah, French yeah. accents where are why, why do they not do it with French accents at least for the movie for fuck's sake uh, and if you want to be part of next episode's conversation, well, first of all, Lauren, this is episode 249, which means the next episode is a milestone episode, and we are finally covering The Wizard of Oz, everyone! Woo! That'll be fun! It will be! It's gonna be an epic episode! Ta- <laughs> right after an epic musical, Second Chance Theater. Uh, Lauren, thank you so much for popping back on. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and bye for now. Ciao, ciao, kids. Special thanks to Justin Johnson for creating the podcast's artwork and to Nick Bombasino for composing the theme song and the jingles in this podcast. And thank you to CastBox for hosting this podcast. Bye again, everyone, and have a musical day.